go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, I can think of no greater opportunity, no greater moment of praise and worship and prayer and communion with you, Lord, than on the day in which we celebrate your son's birth. The baby that was born, Emmanuel, God with us, the moment in which you cloaked yourself in human sin, took on human nature, that Lord, you might know our plight, that you might know our struggle, that you might know our pain, and that you might overcome it. Lord, on this day, we are not concerned with the things that we are to get or that we are to give. We are not concerned with all of the th- places that are, we're supposed to be and the things that we're supposed to do today. In this moment, at this time, we have gathered together as your people to praise your name and to focus on your son who came for our deliverance. Came offering peace to all men. Good news of great joy the angels told us. And so, Lord, I pray that for those that come today with a heavy heart, that you would be their comforter. I pray for those, Lord, that come today with a distracted mind, that, Lord, you might focus them. I pray, Lord, those who who are just here because they're supposed to be, that today you would intervene into their lives with your glory and convict them of their sin and draw them to Jesus to be saved. Oh, Lord God, would you move however you see fit, however you will be glorified, however you will be most exalted, would you move in your people today? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas. So thankful that all of you have been here. And I'm thankful that on this day that we've kind of have set aside, I mean, really worldwide, there are, are families gathering together today to enjoy one another and to be with one another. And I am particularly thankful that on this Christmas, I get to gather together with my church family. That when Jesus came, his birth not only came that it might secure my salvation, his birth came that it might secure my place in the family of God. His birth came that I might be adopted into this family and that you might be my brothers and my sisters. And whether you like it or not, I'm your brother. You see, I don't think any of us are here this morning on accident. Wherever you're coming in from, some of you are coming in, and this is the first Christmas that you've got without him or without her. And this is, your heart's heavy this year. For some of you, you're coming in, and you got little ones, and your mind's racing, and their mind's racing, and you're trying to figure all that out. For some of you, this is a bit of a break, a bit of a breather in the midst of of chaos. But wherever you come from, whatever your story is this morning, I don't believe you're here by accident. I believe that the Lord, in his providence, in his good grace, has you here at this moment, in this church, at this time, that we might come together and worship him in the goodness of his providence. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want us to go to Luke chapter 2, so if you'll go ahead and in your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. I want us to look at... This Christmas story, the story that is so familiar to practically all of us that have grown up here in the Bible Belt. And I want us to look at it, and I want us to see just the pictures, the glimpses of God's 
providence that we see. And when I, when I talk about providence, I mean the plans of God, the will of God unfolding and how all of life fits together within the will of God, within the plan of God. I said Bible Belt. The other day I heard a preacher say, maybe not the Bible Belt, but the church belt here in, uh, in Calhoun County. And that's probably more accurate, isn't it? But would you stand with me as we read the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2? The first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. And God's inerrant word says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was when the first registration, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, at the, time, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word on this Christmas Sunday. You may be seated. What I want us to do this morning is just make a couple of observations pertaining to the providence of God from the story of Christ's birth. And the first observation that I want us to make this morning is that God causes and uses the ordinary. God causes and uses the ordinary. I use both of those words very particularly, very specifically. I think most of the time when we think of the birth of Christ, we are equipped and we are wired to first go to the supernatural. That we first think of the virgin birth. We first think of Gabriel going to Mary. We, we think of, of the heavens splitting and of, of the angels singing. And we think about all of the testimony of, of the shepherds and we should think of those things. Praise God that we have those things. And as often as we think of those supernatural means of the birth of Christ, we should be provoked to worship. But I think we would be remiss if we missed out on how ordinary much of it was. That there is something to learn in the ordinary means of Jesus' birth and the ordinary way that Jesus comes into the world. Because this is God that we're talking about. This is who Matthew says is to be called Emmanuel, God with us. And yet what happens? He is born to ordinary people in an ordinary place that do ordinary things. And what we come to understand is that in most of our lives, God does not work in the supernatural. God does not work through supernatural means, but God works through ordinary. The ordinary means of providence, the ordinary operations, and the ordinary events of your life. That God is in fact the cause and the worker, the orchestrator of all of those things, weaving them together with the threads of his providence. And there's no place where this is more clear than in Jesus' birth. Think, first of all, of where Jesus is born. Now, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, in the prophet, that's probably about 500 years before Jesus actually comes into the world, it told us that the Messiah was going to be born in the city of David. That is, in Bethlehem. That is where David's roots were. And so, to sit on the throne of David, to reign forever, perpetually from the throne of David, the Messiah was going to be born into Bethlehem, the city of David. Now, 
What's amazing about that is that Mary and Joseph are Nazarenes. They live in a town about 90 miles away from Bethlehem. And so this angel goes to Mary and tells her that she, the virgin, is going to give birth to this child, the child of God. He's going to be called Jesus. He's going to be Emmanuel. All of those things, right? And she's 90 miles away from where the prophet says that she's going to be born. And I bet that if you would have went to Mary that night and asked, do you have any plans to travel to Bethlehem? Mary would have almost certainly said, no, are you kidding? I'm pregnant. I'm not going to ride 90 miles on a mule to go over there. No, I'm going to hang out here. I'm going to nest a little bit. But then there was Caesar Augustus, an ordinary emperor. An emperor that has come and gone generation after generation after generation. And you know what emperors always want? Emperors always want your money. Right? And they want their army to be big and to be mighty. And so what does Caesar do? Caesar Augustus issues a decree that there's going to be a census. Everyone must go back to the town of their heritage. And so they have to travel and go back so that they can be registered to know how much he's going to get from them in taxes. To know how many able-bodied men are going to be able to be a part of his military. And where is Joseph's roots? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. And so he loads his betrothed wife up onto the back of a mule, a donkey, and takes her 90 miles through dangerous roads to get there. And when does he do this? When does the decree necessitate them go? The very time in which Mary is to, get, to give birth. Now that's not supernatural, that's ordinary. And yet, is there any doubt in your mind that the hands of God are not all over it? Is there any doubt in your mind that the fingerprint of God is not all over all of that, that behind, in the workings, that you have Caesar Augustus, who would have been the mightiest man, perhaps, in the history of the world, and yet in this circumstance, he is nothing more than a puppet in the hands of a mightier God. Working in the backgrounds of life, working through the ordinary events of life to fulfill the beauty of the prophecy of Micah 5.2, that his son would be born in Bethlehem. But then think about what happens after Jesus' birth. What happens after Jesus' birth? This is so simple, and yet it's so profound. You know what happened after Jesus' birth? His mom and dad took care of him. His mom and dad took care of him. Now, if Gabriel came to you and he said, hey, you're going to give birth to the Son of God, what do you do? How do you respond? I mean, what's your next course of action? I can imagine looking at Megan in the eyes and saying, whatever we do, we've got to keep this baby alive. This baby cannot have dirty diapers. This baby's got to be cared for perfectly. You know what you do? You just take care of the baby. You do what you know how to do. I, I kind of laugh when I started thinking about it. You know, the text emphasizes, as it has to, because obviously she has to be a birth for all of this, a virgin for all of this fit together, but it emphasizes that Jesus is her firstborn son. And now, Megan and I, for a year now, have been the parents of two kids. 
And you know what? That changes things. And so I started thinking about what it must have been like for Mary taking care of her first. And I guarantee that Mary did exactly what all of us first-time parents do. She kind of went overboard on everything. I mean, with Gracie Kate, like, if she starts whimpering the smallest bit, you scoop her up and you rock her and you take care of her. You've got all the baby rules. Megan and I followed the baby rules like we were Pharisees trying to get into heaven. I mean... We followed every rule to the T. She had all the primo stuff, top-notch stuff, but then baby number two comes. Baby number two comes, and if she's quiet, you don't care that she's sucking on a cheese puff that's two weeks old from underneath the chair. She's quiet. She's not dead. She's happy. It's cool. And we look at Mary, and we look at Joseph, and as they're looking down in this manger... They're looking at their firstborn. The standard of the day was to have swaddling cloths, cloths that would bind the baby really tightly so that the baby would feel secure and warm. And what does her baby have? Swaddling cloths. It appeared that there was no place for them to be, but what did these parents ensure was so? They ensured that their baby had a warm, soft, dry place to lay and to rest. They took care of this baby so much that later on in the same chapter, Luke would say that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. You know how you do that? By being taught and fed and nurtured and cared for. Ordinary means, but God's fingerprint is all over it. That the Lord is using an ordinary mom and an ordinary dad in an ordinary town to raise up his son and to accomplish his will for his glory. You know, I think that we tend to expect God in the supernatural but dismiss him in the ordinary. I think so often in my life I have tried to live from like mountaintop a uh, hair-raised, goosebump moment to the next hair-raised, goosebump moment. But somehow we miss the supreme beauty of God and the splendor of God and the providence of God that is overwhelming in the minutia of life. In the tiny things, the ordinary moments, the ordinary moments that he uses to let you meet your wife and come together. The ordinary moments that he uses to let you ultimately end up in the right church at the right time to hear the gospel preached so that you might be drawn to salvation. The ordinary means that he uses that you might cross someone's path that you need to encourage on that day to enable their persevering or vice versa. Brothers and sisters, let us learn how to see God in the ordinary of life. There are so many opportunities of worship right in front of our faces every single day. So many evidences of the goodness of God's grace every single day. And all of the ordinary things from the smile of the, your children to the swiping and approval of your debit card to the going into the inner, to entering in to your bed every single night. All of them are the evidences of God's provision and protection and good grace to you. And if you can learn to praise God like that. If you can learn to savor the graces of God like that, let the mountaintops come or not come. Let the hard days come as they're going to come. But you will have means for praise. 
You will have means for worship because you will know that God has not abandoned you. And God has not forsaken you. Yet he's weaving these things together in the threads of his sweet providence. The second observation that I want us to make this morning is that circumstances aren't always what they seem. Circumstances aren't always what they seem. Now look with me to verse 5. Verse 5, it says, to be met, registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, most of you have been, been a part of the church. You know what being betrothed means. Being betrothed means you have not yet consummated the marriage. You are kind of a step above our definition of engagement, but a step below our definition of marriage. And so the marriage has not yet been consummated. It does not have God's approval to be entered into that most sacred of moments. And yet, what do we have in Mary? This teenage girl. She's pregnant. Now you can imagine that every person that saw Mary thought exactly what Joseph thought at first. That every person that, she, that saw Mary thought that this must be indeed a less than virtuous woman. That this must be a philanderer. That this must be an adulteress of some type. And then you add into that that she's got to go to Bethlehem. In other words, she's got to go face the in-laws. She's got to go to where Joseph's heritage is from, where all of his family is. She's got to go in there as a teenage, not yet bride, pregnant. And you try to explain to your in-laws that it was by an angel. By the Spirit of the Lord, I am pregnant. Yeah, but that flies over like a lead balloon, right? The circumstances are less than desirable. In fact, they're just downright difficult until you realize that this is in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7. That promised us that the Son of God would be born of a virgin. That the Son of God would in fact not inherit the sin nature of Adam as Romans 5 says. But instead would be conceived by the Spirit of God in the holiness and righteousness of God. That the Son of God would be entirely God and entirely man at the same time. Born of a woman, conceived of the Spirit. You look from the outside in and it's just not what it seems to be. Think about this from the perspective of Mary. Now, we know that, the, you know, the song is Mary, did you know? Well, yes, you knew most of it, right? Like, the, most of the questions that the song asks, she, we can in fact say, yeah, she probably knew most of it. How did she know? The angels told her. But the angels didn't tell her everything, did they? We know that because when the shepherds come from what we, uh, from a couple of weeks ago in the second part of this text, the angels come and they give testimony to what the Lord has told them about Jesus the Messiah. And it says that Mary stayed there and she listened in amazement and treasured these things up in her heart. They were new to her and so she took them and she collected them in her heart that she might be continued to move, be moved in worship and praise. So there were some things that Mary didn't know. And I'm going to promise you that among the things, when you read through all the things that Mary was told about giving birth to the Savior, she was never told that she was going to have to ride on a 90-mile donkey ride eight or nine months pregnant. She was never told that. Mary was never told that she was not going to be able to be at home building her nest and getting things just the way that she likes it. 
Mary was never told that, there was, that they were going to have to go to, to, to the home of Joseph's ancestry to be born in a barn and laid in a feeding trough. She was never told that about her baby. And so even from Mary's perspective, as she's looking down on her baby, as she's thinking through how all of this is fit together, no doubt she's filled with worship. No, no doubt she's treasuring all of these things. But the circumstances are odd. The circumstances are odd because Mary could not have conceivably, conceivably put together that the Son of God that was to come was not going to be a mighty ruler in that day, but instead was going to be the one who emptied himself of his divine privileges and divine rights to go and to die on the cross. As she looked at her baby in the manger, there was no way for her to fit together all of the circumstances and understand all that God was doing. But without a doubt, God was at work. Without a doubt, God did all of the ride, all of the things in fulfillment of his prophetic word. Miraculously getting her circumstances so that they were perfectly aligned to accomplish his divine will. That we might be rescued, that Christ might be our deliverer. When you look at your circumstances, most of the time they're not going to add up. Whenever you judge your circumstances, or in fact, whenever you judge the circumstances of others, you are always making a judgment based on incomplete information. You can't see the future. You can't see what is to come. And so however you look at your plight in life, your struggle in life, your difficulty in life, maybe it's an eight-inch incision. Maybe it's the loss of your job. Maybe it's the loss of your husband or your baby. Maybe it's something that none of us can even conceive of at this time. But you look down at your circumstances and none of it makes sense. That's how it always is in the providence of God. We look down and we have incomplete information. And we, as his children, believe in faith that in the end all of the pieces are going to come together. God's providence for us most often looks like a puzzle that has the most important pieces missing, doesn't it? We look down at our life and we have this and we have this, but we're missing the middle. And so what we believe as the children of God is we believe that God, in the sweetness of his providence, is going to fit all of those things together. And he is going to divinely supply the missing pieces in ways that we cannot fathom. How many times... In your life, have you looked back in retrospect and said, praise God, at something that in the moment you said, curse God? How many times have you reflected back and looked at hardships in your life, having no idea in the moment how they were going to fit together, how the pieces were going to come together, what God could possibly be doing, what God could possibly be expecting, only a year later, five years later, ten years later, to look back and reflect and say, praise God, he was there every step of the way. I just couldn't see it. This is how the Lord works in his providence. This is how the Lord works, as he unveils it for us, as he rolls it out, that we might be filled with faith and confidence in his sovereign power and sovereign grace. I want you to see next that God is always on time. God is always on time. 
We know by the testimony of the angel and Mary's response that being told to give birth to God's son that Mary is a woman of faith. But don't you think she had some questions when she was riding on the back of that donkey? Don't you think she had some questions? Look, my wife, we, we went to the doctor in Birmingham when she was pregnant. And that's a tough woman. I mean, that's a tough woman. But she struggled. Eight or nine months pregnant, she struggled making a 70-mile ride in an F-150 to Birmingham. Can you imagine how difficult it must have been to ride 90 miles, eight or nine months pregnant, on the back of a donkey from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Think about just the sheer volume of bathroom breaks that they must have taken. Think about how many times she would say, Joseph, I just can't go any farther. And Joseph would lug her pregnant self off of that donkey, put her down and say, let's just rest, baby. Let's just rest. You know, Joseph, among some people, some very incorrect people, I believe, is, uh, is kind of seen in a negative light that the reason that there's no, the, the rumor is that the reason there's no room in the end is that Joseph is a poor planner. Listen, if you've ever had a pregnant wife, you know things take longer than you can ever expect. Just think about how many times he must have stopped. How slow the journey must have been. Think about from, from Mary how painful it must have been. How difficult it must have been. How tough she must have been to have been able to persevere and to actually get there. Probably having contractions. If she gets there and it's time to have the baby, it's probably her having contractions. When, when, the, when, the, uh, when the Bible says... The time came to give birth. Some, some commentators say that that is almost an interjection into the text. That it, that it makes it appear as though the time came in a way that they didn't anticipate. That it, the time came suddenly. That maybe she was not yet full term. And, and the time came and it was time for her to have the baby. And so you look at all of that. And it seems like maybe God missed the timing on this one a bit. It seems like, like maybe God missed the timing on this a bit. You can imagine that as Mary is being walked up this mountain with the rocky terrain and the dangerous roads for 90 miles. This is, a, this is several weeks worth of journey that she's got questions. God, this is your son. This is your son. You said I was a woman of great faith. You said I have found your favor. And God, can I just be frank, this doesn't feel like favor. Can imagine Joseph, Lord, really? She told me that this was your son. Then your angel came and told me this was your son. And your son is going to be born like this. Yet we know that God was remarkably on time. Brilliantly on time. Beautifully on time. Getting them exactly where they needed to be. Having the baby exactly where the baby should be born. And exactly the moment the baby should be there. I think that when it comes to God's providence, perhaps his timing is the most difficult thing for us to understand or sympathize with. That we feel, look at our lives and we just think, God, this is never going to happen. I'm never going to meet the right person. I'm never going to have a family of my own. I'm never going to have grandkids of my own. I'm never going to have the career that I feel like I should have. 
My life is never going to fit together the way everybody else's seems to fit together. God, would you just show up? God, would you just do something? And then, in the stillness of the night, in the moments that seem so remarkably ordinary, on the day in which you're riding on the back of a mule, God shows up. His timing is greater than you could have ever expected and accomplishes more than you could have ever accomplished because the Lord has seen you through. Because the Lord's providence has been fitting this together at the right time, in the right place, the whole way with the threads of providence. Trust in the timing of the Lord. Jesus' birth is proof that you can trust in the timing of God. The fact that the baby was born, when he was born, where he was born, and the way that he was born is clear evidence that you can trust the timing of God. The Bible tells us that patience is the fruit of the Spirit. And it is the fruit of the Spirit because it is the exact opposite of your natural instinct. We are built to be impatient people. But if we will fill ourselves with the Spirit, if we will draw near to God and place our faith explicitly and totally in Him, then we can rest and we can be put at ease and know Spirit-wrought patience and Spirit-wrought confidence in the brilliant timing of God. You see, Jesus was born in humility. That he might ultimately die in humiliation. John Piper says that that Christmas is the second most important day in the Christian's life because it has a mission, an aim at the most important, that being Easter, Resurrection Sunday. The baby that was born in the manger would leave on the cross. He comes in swaddling cloths, but will one day be wrapped in grave cloths, but for not very long. For not very long. The baby that came in humility, died in humiliation, would be resurrected in glorification. And brothers and sisters, this morning, look to him. Look to Him. Look to Him in the struggle of your timing. Look to Him in the moments of your difficulty. Look to to Him when all of life is not fitting together. And know that in the resurrected Christ, all of us who have been adopted into His family have victory. Perhaps some of you do not have victory. You have not come to enjoy the miracle that really is Christmas. And this morning, I invite you to come. Come to Christ. In in lieu of a a normal invitation this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to come to the Lord's table. Jesus says that when he gave us the Lord's Supper, he said that as often as you take of this bread, as often as you drink of this cup, remember me. And I can think of no more appropriate time for us to bring to our remembrance the glory of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ than in the moment that we set aside to celebrate the entrance of Christ. The Lord tells us, or Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should be sober-minded as we take the Lord's Supper. That you should evaluate your life and look for areas of unrepentant sin and repent them in this moment. 
Repent means that once you confess it to the Lord, you are resolved by the Lord's strength and the Lord's grace to do it no longer. If you know that you're going to go back to the same sin when you leave here today, then you should not take of the Lord's Supper. As 1 Corinthians 11 tells us, some have died for having taken it in an inappropriate manner. At Iron City, we welcome all of you who are in the household of God, all of you who are in the family of God, even if your membership is not with this local body, to come and to join us at the Lord's table. We only ask that you would have participated and you would have demonstrated your obedient life to Christ through believer's baptism. That, again, we do that only in protection with the, with the sobriety that comes with 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you've resolved already that you're going to be baptized or you're planning to be baptized in, in the next uh, in, uh, near future, then we would welcome you yet still because we believe you have already con- resolved in your heart to obey the Lord in believer's baptism. But at this time, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I'm going to invite our, uh, our deacons to come forward that we might come to the Lord's table and remember what Christ has done and remember who Christ is. To his glory.